Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are... However you're listening, welcome to America's Talk, radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined tonight by Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and our guest co-host, Ashley Hardgrave. All right, tonight, Oliver goes inside the huddle with two-time Grammy Award winner Michelle DeYoung, Listen for her advice for young dramatic voices and for her story about singing Kinder Tolton Leader after 9-11. But first, in Chalk Talk, American mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton blends her musical activities with frankly stated positions on social and political issues. That's become an increasingly notable trademark for her. We're going to talk about a slate of recent tweets that she posted addressing diet culture and its effects on opera singers. And then two-minute drill, you're going to get... All your opera headlines, including two summertime young artist programs that are taking new directions. And of course, you can call us on the air, get your voice heard. Phone lines have already been lighting up tonight. Number in the studio is 847-866-WNUR is our number. Give us your hot take on the lottest opera news stories, 847-866-9687. You can tweet us at Opera Box, or you can post on our Facebook page. Oliver Camacho over in Studio 2. You know, it's going to be a fun show when 9-11 and Kinder Toten Leader are invoked in the first minute. I have a good feeling about this show, actually. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> um, Do you not, Tobias Wright? I I don't know if Kinder Toten Leader and 9-11 are why I have a good feeling about this show, but I do have a good feeling about this show. It's probably... Is that fair? It, that's fair. It's fair. And, of course, we have our guest co-host, Ashley Hardgrave in the studio with us as well. All hello, right. hello. It's going great. We have people listening for the first time because <laughs> they're excited to hear Michelle DeYoung. I know that for a fact. So hang on tight, folks. I promise you we're going to get our poop together. We're let's get down to it. Work. Yeah, let's do it. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. It's Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM. Again, American mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton, she's 37, on social media where she maintains a lively presence. She's been a forthright advocate on queer issues. She identifies as bisexual. She's spoken out on matters of weight and body positivity, most recently in a Twitter thread on the dangers of dieting. Oliver, give us a couple of those choice tweets. So this was posted on July 29th, uh, and I'm going to just read some tweets here. So, I want to take a minute to be super real about something that is very personal to me, but something I think is really important, like maybe one of the most important, one of the most positive and healthiest steps I've ever taken for myself. I want to tell you guys about my walk away from dieting. I've been a big girl for a long time, and I've dieted since grad school. Everything and everyone told me I needed to. Everyone from the doctor to my family to 95% of stores that sold clothes when I was younger told me in no uncertain terms that I would only be healthy if I was skinny. I was told this by opera companies multiple times over. I was told this in compliments from well-meaning people when they noticed that I had lost weight and in the awkward silence of those who noticed when I put weight back on. It's pervasive and utterly exhausting. In my gut, I've always known that I am more than my weight. I have more to offer to this world than what could be quantified by a set of scales. What I didn't understand was that my weight, my body, is an intrinsic part of who I am. Those stretch marks are evidence of early struggle and now triumph. My body carries me through each and every day and does amazing things like walking, seeing, feeling. I have an instrument in my throat that soars over Wagnerian orchestras like Valkyrie or sings like a Valkyrie or sings Baroque music with grace and nuance. That instrument is housed in a short neck and surrounded by a double chin. My voice is directly impacted by the anatomy around it, fat and all. What I'm now just beginning to understand 
um, is that weight, whether larger or smaller, anywhere or anywhere in between, is not an indicator of health or success. I'm just a few months into walking away from dieting, and I'm doing it with the help of professionals who believe that intuitive eating is the healthiest way to live. I'm learning to hear my body and trust its natural cues, and I'm telling you I'm healthier than I've ever been. And it gets it goes on, but that's basically the gist of it. She's telling us that she's not going to die anymore. She's gonna she's gonna do she's gonna eat when she's hungry. Can yeah. I just quickly say two words? Amen and preach. Is that allowed? <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> Amen and preach. I don't yeah. think we ever say that on here. We're uh, not the yeah. We're an atheist podcast, apparently. So. Yeah. Well, we're going to white church tonight, kids. <laughs> Buckle up. It's going to happen. Um, yeah. Toby? Well, I I mean, I actually really agree with her. Uh, in that diet culture is pervasive. Um, and I know through you know personal experience that there's a ton of pressure involved with shifting your appearance um, for a role and a, a desired aesthetic, um, especially for performance art. Um, and I think that that's a tremendous detriment to the singing. I mean, the singing is already hard enough. And when you then become... Uh, wrapped up in someone critiquing your image and the makeup, the just the the fabric of your being, um, it no longer is about the singing. And, and so I think it's, I love the rant. I'm so grateful that someone with this um, stature within the community said it. Um, and for every person who's been shamed about the shape or you know the way that their body is made um and as if that wouldn't allow them to perform successfully i embrace them um and i cringe thinking about some of the things that i've seen too you know what i mean um people being paraded into rooms and told that they can't wear certain dresses because their arms are too fat well what the hell i mean if i can sing i can sing and that should be the end of it yeah, my upper arm isn't the thing that is going to tell the no. story. My voice is, and my <laughs> diction is, and my interpretation is. Whether or not I can fit into a size small t-shirt doesn't mean I can't do Carmen. Yeah, Ashley, do you feel like Jamie Barton is alone in this experience, or do you feel like there's other singers of her uh, level of notoriety, of fame, that have been through this same path? Yeah, um, let me try not to oversell this. Every female identifying singer that has ever tried to study classical music has gone through this experience. Mm. Whether it was their, you know, their freshman year of college, whether it was in their first young artist program, whether it was their first major contract uh, overseas in Europe, I guarantee every single female identifying singer out there has had this experience no less than five times. There is there is shame in size, and there is praise in making oneself small or smaller than they were uh, and and it what makes this so revolutionary I guess and and again I'm trying not to oversell it but it is kind of revolutionary is that you know what she's doing here is she's advocating for two kinds of health first her behavioral health because the the amount of pressure that this puts on on someone's you know mind and soul is is so scary in addition to all of the dangerous things that you might be doing to your body to help you know try to adhere to some of these standards and then of course the physical health aspect as well um, you know I also think it's really important to think about the the sexism I know that there are, are shaming you know body shaming measures that happen on both ends of the gender spectrum in this art form but for for women specifically you know traditional femininity and the hallmarks of of different types of feminine success are really tied up exactly into this we must mold and shape our bodies oh, into absolutely. these it's into a, these levels of success. It's a it's a control mechanism. 100%. I mean it's and it's terrible because like when do we ever go to see an opera or listen to music and 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 truly and I, this is me personally speaking but truly when are we actually um what's the word I'm looking for distracted or taken away from the music based on someone's size. And I can say honestly i don't ever feel like it's happened and so it is such a power and manipulative move to tell people that they have to change um and change physically for them to be successful and i mean i have word i have four letter words that i want to say <laughs> i think i'm a little hangry i don't know but i just want to get mad about it well it's listen we're not going to shame you for being hangry <laughs> if you put food in that body we are not going to shame you oh my god i didn't even mean to do that no no <laughs> believe me i'm literally my my brain wasn't firing there <laughs> Yeah, it's Opera Box eating, Score so, yeah. on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist with Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and our guest co-host Ashley Hardgrave. Going over some tweets here and some ideas from Jamie Barton, the American mezzo 
soprano. It's true. I taught a, um, or I teach a master class in Drink. auditioning hey. technique. And uh, the whole theory that I sort of propose is like, I want singers to really use the little micro stage that's in front of the piano during their audition. Mm-hmm. And the last time I taught this course, it happened to be four women were taking the class. And at the end, one of them said something that I'd, I'd never heard before, which was, it's this uh, system is incredible because it encourages us as women and as women in opera to take up space. Yes, and yes. to be seen. And it was kind of this revolutionary idea for her. Trust me, that was her idea, not mine, by the way. Right, but it's totally completely opposed to what we're hearing in so many other areas, you know, where we are expected to make ourselves smaller in all of these different ways. I can't even tell you how many times I have... Uh, both on on both sides of the table because I have both uh, run admissions for music schools. I've also gone on series of auditions. I've performed as a singer, and uh, and and there are these these tropes that you hear from folks. She uh, oh she totally looks like a Rosina. She totally looks like mm. a Susanna. Oh that is a Zalame. You know, and and it has everything to do with some version of their aesthetic that almost always has to do with their waistline, and it's so upsetting. Actually, here we are in 2019. This idea is... Wait, Oliver, what were you going to say? No, I mean, I just want to say that, like, the the great voices find a way. And, you know, Jamie Barton, as long as I've known her about her artistry, she's always been her size, you know? But I don't care because I'm crazy about the way she sings. And we're about to hear um, from Michelle DeYoung, who, as a woman who's like, I think she's like 6'2 or something like that. She's like a very Mm -hmm. tall, you know a formidable stage presence, you know? And yeah, you're, you would never say about Michelle, oh yeah, she looks like a Rosina. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. She is, yeah, I, I just got a chance to, I'm, I'm going to pull a George here, I just got a chance to be around her during the Mahler 8 at Ravinia mm-hmm. and just being able to be in her presence and, and the... Drink. Yeah, there yeah. it is, you're welcome. <laughs> that that stature. I let know. you go for a while thinking you'd get away with it. No, no, you know, I know. I, I, I know the drill here, I like it a lot. Uh, but yeah, I mean, she's just this presence she again to use your phrase George she takes up space but in the most beautiful majestic way and then she opens her mouth and then the heavens happen to open because it's all fantastic everything that's happening um but yeah no that's that's something that's uh you you wouldn't use that with someone like Michelle DeYoung well elegance and grace and beauty are not defined by size so and I think that's really important also you know thinking about this too just as my Straight white male privilege. One of like the biggest reliefs ever is when everybody started saying dad bods are sexy. And I was like, <laughs> oh, thank God. You know, like. Hop in Stranger Things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sign me up. So I don't know what you're talking about yeah. there, but <laughs> I also didn't know who Lizzo. Yeah, until like five minutes ago. Oh, until we changed was. your life right before the broadcast started? But I am 100% aware yeah. of who she is now. Yeah, Ashley, it's 2019. <laughs> this idea should not be revolutionary, and it yet is. it is. It is. Why? Why is now the moment, even three, four years ago, I'm not convinced that these sorts of conversations were happening? Uh, it's because they weren't. At least they weren't happening in public. Uh, there are there are lots of women. I mean, this is this is a female experience. It doesn't you know it doesn't stop at opera. It's in film. It's in television. It's in the recording art you know arts industry with folks like Lizzo. Um, but we've basically in the last couple of years, there's just been a freedom to to be more honest and open. And I think it kind of goes hand in hand with sort of the behavioral health movement of people being a little more uh, open and honest. With me too. <laughs> Maybe that as well. Yeah. But I but again, I think that we're we're paying closer attention to things like behavioral and mental health and and in how how things make you feel, which will actually be something that comes up later in hot takes. But you know, the way that this makes you feel, these, you know, this constant pressure to to amend your body to fit these specific types of things. You know, if this is the end goal, if this is the thing that you want, you will mold and shape yourself so that you can win this prize. I, I think there is a new generation of people coming up that are really just kind of fed up with that rhetoric and, and saying no more. And they have a boldness to them, which I am, you know, both excited and elated and frankly frustrated by because I had that boldness, but I got very yeah. smacked a lot of the time. So the fact that we're getting this generation that's like, nah, no more, we're not doing it. I, I love that it's happening. Do we have a caller on the line right now, George? We do not. Okay. <laughs> so um, we might have had a caller on the line, but um, there is something else that we are not talking about, which is like the male um, ideal, you know? Absolutely. And how, you know, bear hunks are sort of a thing now. I mean, like it's actually a thing. 
And uh, there are roles that are being written for that voice type, not just baritone, but specifically a baritone who can be naked on stage, mm-hmm. who can be shirtless on stage. That's a fuck now. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. I, I find that upsetting. It's and like we're finally yep. getting away from like, you know, yes, it's a visual storytelling medium, but there there are other ways to visually tell this story that don't include a shirtless baritone, as much as yeah. I might enjoy a shirtless baritone. But I mean, like, can you imagine, time. like, whatever, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, if a singer who comes comes around who is like Cornell McNeil or like Tito Kobe and wants to sing Dead Men Walking, would he get cast in, you know, he learned how to speak English, you know, but, you know, <laughs> would, would he be able to be cast in a role like that, you know, where there's an expectation where you're going to be seen in your boxers and nothing else, you know, at some point in the show? I hope so. Yeah? I, I, I want anybody to be able to play any role that they are vocally fit to play. That is the world that I, that is the utopian opera world that I want to live in. Aww. <laughs> I think, though, I've seen that a couple of times recently. Actually, shirtless dudes who were just. Chubby Des Rochers? I've never seen a Chubby Des Rochers. Okay. <laughs> For some reason, that really rings well. No, but like, you saw Fellow Travelers last year. Like, they were shirtless in that multiple times, and like, they were just average bodies. They weren't. Yeah, but they weren't superstar. Like, like they were average bodies, but they weren't. I say it's hard to even talk about this without using language that sounds derogatory. You right, know, they weren't large. Bodies. Yeah, they weren't aesthetically unpleasing. I, mean, I to know, certain people. I know a singer slash composer who's very body positive and describes herself as fat and wants wants to be wants that word to not have stigma attached to it you know mm-hmm. right. i don't know if i can say it i feel like it's like saying the n-word if you're not uh, well i don't know jamie barton called herself fat in this in yeah. her tweet rant i think it's you know i honestly think it's a little bit different for for each person mm-hmm. that identifies as part of that community you know some people mm-hmm. like to use extended size some people like to use plus size some people like to use fat some people like to try to avoid descriptive words altogether mm-hmm. and come up with yeah. you know some sort of new yeah. magical phrase for it yeah um so here's one more thing to mix into the pot. Um, I know there are people who are jealous of other singers and who right away look to, oh, well, she got cast because, you know, she has a great set of whatever mammary glands, you know, or like, oh, that that. <laughs> counter- I'm sure that was a direct quote. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or that countertenor. I wonder if know. that's the first time we've ever said mammary glands on here. <laughs> that well, counter- it's certainly not going to be the last. Is always <laughs> like breakdancing or something like that. You know, like I've heard those conversations of people like questioning the talent of people who are, who have those physical attributes that are comely. You know. Well, and um, candidly, I mean, it, I'm pretty sure it did have some things to do with it there's a there's a specific opera company that i think of in this midwestern region and that is as specific as i'll get but there was an era uh that and if we need to edit this out later you can tell me but we um, don't edit crap (laughs) (laughs) uh it was it was kind of the era of tits and hair like every every woman that yeah we might have to edit yeah okay well (laughs) see i warned you um but yeah it was i mean there was a very significant very distinct pattern All, all of the women were good singers they all yeah. sang the roles very well and yeah. got through it and nobody sounded tired and it, it it was it was great but they all looked a very distinct way they mm-hmm. were all a very you know specific a height and weight distribution they all had yeah. lots of hair and they had to use your words all of her very extensive sets of mammary glands so, <laughs> yeah. but it was yeah i mean it, it was like a three or four season stretch of like oh there it goes again there it goes again and i mean they they got it done they told the story but it was it was really hard to miss i feel like um we have a caller that wants to call right now can we accept his phone call sure sure we can okay. take his, we can take so if you're tr- if you want to call please do we know that you want to weigh in on this topic we'll we'll hang out with this topic for a little bit longer well here's what, here's what we'll do we'll go to the break and okay. then they'll call in and we'll, and we'll be back all right okay. so it's going to be more on opera box score george cedarquist tobias wright oliver camacho along with our guest co-host ashley hardgrave this is america's talk radio show about opera wnur 89.3 fm and hd northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bearer hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist with Tobias Wright, Oliver Camacho, and our guest co-host, Ashley Hardgrave. We're going to the phone lines now, and hello, you are Opera Box Score. Hey, it's Anthony from the Bronx. I called you before, George. Anthony oh from the Bronx. Yeah. What's on your mind, buddy? I'm good. Yeah, I, was gonna, I wanted to call in, I guess, because I was kind of falling asleep. But anyway, I really enjoy your show a lot. But sure. I'm wondering, whatever happened to Jacques? Is Jacques? Is she not on the show anymore? Oh, jo- Giovanna? Oh, that's it. I'm sorry. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I really like the way you guys have expanded your recovery. I like you had, it's, I mean, I've always, I said, you know, sports, opera, and now with the comic book and superhero angle, it was fantastic. What? Really enjoyed last week's show, Dan Thor around last week, right? <laughs> the uh, conversation we just had about Jamie Barton, what's your take? Well, listen, people are people. They can do whatever they want. They can live however they want, as long as it doesn't hurt me personally. <laughs> That's my motto. Does Does anything hurt you personally, Anthony? Well, some of the the, the bits from your previous uh, ten minutes. But anyway, I'm just joking around. You know what I mean? <laughs> All so right. Anyway, Anthony, what's what's your good for her. what's your hot take on on the world of opera this week? What's one big story that has really fascinated you that you've got a hot take on you mean what if something that was going to make me cringe if all of us started talking about it <laughs> that's exactly right what's going to make you reach for the barf bag well, over there in the honest, bronx that was the past 10 minutes but luckily he skirted by it very well i thought he didn't he didn't call anybody fat i'm just waiting for the issued uh, written apology next week but anyway. <laughs> I think we've reached Let's our quote. Whatever happens, I think my, I, I, you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time. You guys, it probably costs money to rent that studio and to rent the airtime. So <laughs> you just go ahead and do it. I appreciate you taking the call, though, George. Good luck to you with everything. Thank you, Anthony, very much. Always great to have a caller on the air. Oliver Camacho, introduce us to your interview with so Michelle. Know that I'm a. Uh, an audiophile or a recording collector, a hoarder. Let's just say that's, I'm a hoarder. I have lots of CDs, and I acquired um, a recording back in the 90s, probably, of Michelle DeYoung when she was an emerging artist on uh, EMI label. And uh, so that put her on my radar, and the first time I got to hear her live was when she sang Amneris uh, in the Ravinia Festival, um, like maybe in 2016 or 2014, a long time ago, with Latonya Moore and Roberto Olanya. Mm. And it was a, a mind blowing performance. She literally stole the show. Latonya Moore is great. I did a production of Aida with Drink. her. Drink. Drink. Oh. <laughs> so, of course, since then, I've been following uh, Michelle de Young's career. And, you know, she's won two Grammys and she's like Soprano Falcone singing Siglinda and singing you know um kundry like it's it's just a her career is major and this was it was very very fortunate that she was willing to sit down with me for just a couple minutes uh we were both going to matthias gurna's recital at ravinia festival last week and so this is our conversation yeah i um i started singing or thinking about singing rather late i was already in my second year of college and when I decided to try it, I transferred, ending up in um, Cal State Northridge working with a wonderful teacher named Kurt Allen. And he really, he was not intimidated at all by my dramatic voice. He just took it and just really let it mature on its own. And he let me sing. He taught me how to support and things like that. But it was a very natural um, technique. And he said to me one day, I want you to to 
prepare five arias because I want you to do the Met competition. And I said, Kurt, I'm not ready to do the Met competition. I had nothing. I was totally green still. No languages or anything. And he said, I want you to do it. I want you to prepare for it. You're going to win it. And then they're going to ask you to be a young artist. And I laughed and I said, <laughs> Kurt, I know you love me, yeah. but I mean, that can't happen. I've never even done a competition. You know, I've done nothing. So anyway, so, I did it and I won LA and then I won the Western region and then I won in New York and they asked me to be a young artist. So, so you were in the Linden program like very early. In yes, your... I wasn't done with college. I okay. went straight in. Huh. And you said you did not have languages prepared and you had to whip together five arias. Yeah. Do you even remember what arias they were? Mon cœur s'ouvre ta voix, which um, has, I've sung throughout and I've actually done the role and I, I absolutely love Dalila. Um, the veil aria, Consoli del Velo from Don yeah. Carlo, which now I do not love. Safa <laughs> um, Omalir, which it. is so yeah. beautiful and yeah. unfortunately never done. It's so beautiful. Um, must the winter come so soon? Oh, that old thing. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> va, no, something. In it was va. Was I think va? it was okay. va. Good guess. I was like, wow, what was it? You have a lot of French in your repertoire. I think it was va. You know, people use this concept a lot of like a dramatic voice. And I know young singers who think they have dramatic voices and, you know, they feel like they're not ready yet and they just need more, they need more time to bake and nobody understands what to do with them. They can't sing in choirs. And, um, I don't know. How do you feel about that, like about young dramatic voices and what they should be doing to get themselves ready? Well, first of all, with any young singer, whatever voice type they are, I do think it's important to be a good musician. So if a, a young singer is not a good musician, I, I recommend they take an instrument. Uh, I personally usually say the piano, but any instrument and really become a good musician. That's imperative. Um, I think there's so much you can still do. Because you, there's so much song repertoire. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, fantastic sing song repertoire. Or sing arias that you can do that fit your voice. I mean, it's not like you're going to go on stage. I mean, say, for instance, um, even when I was 22 or 23, however old I was when I did the Met competition, um, I'm not going to do Dalila, mm -hmm. but I still sing the aria. So, or, or I'm not going to sing um, Ebeli but I still sang that aria. So there's still things you can do and work on while you're, you're growing up. Um, there, it's, you don't have to do like the hardest, uh, and you shouldn't do the hardest repertoire that's going to hurt you. You need to learn how to sing by doing it. But taking an instrument for you is about developing musicianship skills. Yes. And song repertoire also engages your brain. You have to learn languages and whatnot. But your voice itself, I'm trying to get to the technical aspect of being a dramatic singer. Like, how did you feel as a young dramatic singer? Did you feel like you had to do something special? There were expectations of you. And now that you are, you know, in the position to begin to mentor younger singers, um, what advice do you have for them when they feel like they, they have this big unwieldy voice, for lack of a better way of phrasing it? I think it's important to use the voice. I think that... Um, I think a danger is to take a big voice and put it into small repertoire. Okay. I actually think that's a danger because that isn't using the voice. It's closing down the voice. And it is a much different thing to clean a voice or to close down the voice. So I would not recommend that. I would recommend singing, finding something you can sing. You know, some Handel or some Bach or some things like that as opposed to Rossini, you know, I didn't say, I mean, I did a little teeny bit of Rossini, but not much because that, that isn't my voice. So I think that it's important to do things, but just, I mean, you have to, there's somehow you have to learn how to sing. You have to learn how to support you have, and you're not going to do it without using your voice. There is repertoire that you don't get to sing when you're in college um, because nobody else has that can match you, you know? And so you find this young dramatic voice like in undergrad, what do you do with them? You put him as third lady in the magic flute, you know? So I think there there's a disadvantage there for young singers who discover they might have a voice that's bigger than what, you know, most lyric voices are when they're that age. 
Uh, did you have that challenge? Where, I know you went right to the Met competition. <laughs> no, but I did roles. So they put on um, some operas for me at college, and I did. I, I felt like there were really great opportunities. Like I sang Principessa in Sorangelica. Okay. Um, of course, I wouldn't do that on a major stage. Yeah. But in college, it was fine, and it was right for me. Um, and you know, there's. I sang quite young. I sang Cornelia in Julius Caesar. Um, and I did um, the lead role in Tartuffe by Kirk Meacham, which was a blast. And it was also, you know, I got to just use my voice. So uh, I, I feel like, and they also would like give me orchestra concerts in college. I, I did the Kendra Toten Leader in, with orchestra, and, <laughs> and I did recitals and things like that. I do think that there are things that you can do to really, because it takes a long time to hone your craft. Yeah. So I do think that there are things to do, and then it does take time to, to get to the age where you can do it. But, you know, b- back in, like, Flagstaff's time, she was singing Wagner in her, when she was quite young. Mm-hmm. So it... And Rosa Pansal was, like, 18 years old. Or exactly, like exactly. Yeah. So it, good technique is good technique. How did you get to your technique? I mean, and I feel like you're such a great technician, and... Do you credit it to your teacher, or did you just come out of the womb being able to do what you do? I came out of the womb with a three-octave range. I have a very large range. I can go from C to C. (laughs) C to shining C. Um, And then it took... Uh, when I was in New York, I started studying with Trish McCaffrey, and it took years to to really develop the the technique. And... um, a lot of of my my own study and um, listening to other people and and things like that and I think you get to the point where we have to be our own teachers and then we have to have teachers that keep us on track but we have to really be responsible for what we're doing if it's if it doesn't feel right if um, if we and I I tape everything I record. You know, all my rehearsals, all my... Even when I'm singing at home alone, I, I record it and listen to it, and hmm. then I fix it. Um, and I think that that was one thing I didn't do enough when I was younger. We have to be more responsible of our own instruments. It's easier to do when it's outside of you, so then you have to record it. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, if it doesn't feel right, or if it's not working, and it should be working, then figure out why isn't it working, what am I doing... And know enough about technique to be able to to figure that out, and then you might not be able to, and you ask somebody that you trust. Okay, yeah. I, when I was watching you work with the Collaborative Arts Institute of Chicago students, uh, technique came up a lot, and it was interesting to me because when I listen to you sing, I hear this sounds so dumb to say, it, but your intellectualism, like you're an intellectual singer, and you think about the words and you yeah. think about phrasing, but when you got to work with these young singers, you were so focused on their technique. Uh, was it just because that's what you felt that they needed, or do you really think that um, that's the way to access, you know, the musicality, you know? Well, you know, you take a, a violinist, for instance. Mm-hmm. You don't give him a really hard violin concerto if he doesn't know how to play it. We have to, that, that's something that gets overlooked, I think. I think it is very, very important for our instrument to be healthy and, and prepared in order to do it. And it takes time. And, you know, sometimes you have to go out on stage not being able to do anything and you figure out how to do it. The first time I sang Kundri was not how I sing Kundri now because I had to figure out how to do it because it's so hard. Um, and mostly what I talk about in master classes is support. I, I find that that is, I would say, 90% of what I talk about because it's very, very hard to teach support and it's very hard to do support. And so many singers can sing without proper support for the first 10 years, but then it quits working. Or I, I'm, I don't mean exactly 10 years, but at some point it will quit working. And uh, Because the, the chords can no longer take it? And yeah, okay. yeah. And you really have to learn, especially when you don't sing with mics, mm-hmm. you have to learn how to support properly. And you learned that with Patricia McCaffrey. McCaffrey. Yeah, and through, like I said, just doing it myself and and doing it over and over and figuring out how... Because I am really a strong woman. Mm -hmm. I think I look like it too, but I am a very strong woman. So I was able to do a lot without proper support. I would do it with strength. And then I couldn't do it anymore. Okay, so so you had your own crisis. Yeah, 
Okay. It wasn't really a crisis, but it was like, oh, Challenge. something has yeah. to change. Okay. And yeah, definitely. And I think that's important too. It's not like, okay, I, I have the exact same voice that I had when I was 22. I mean, we have to keep working on it and keep, you know, what's happening now. And we have to really be aware of it or, or we do have a crisis. You know, one thing about this career is it is the type where you just keep learning. I mean, I'm still learning stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll watch someone and I'll think, wow, that's that's intense. That's, you know, I, I can learn a lot from that. And which I love. I love that about it. I love that I can, like, I went to, last week I went to Santa Fe to listen to, to Yunufa because there's a role With Laura Wildey? Yes. Yeah. And it was so great, and it was just great to see, you know, Suzanne Menser take on this the um, the older lady, and Pat Reset, who was Kolchenitska, who was fantastic, and I mean, all the different characters, all the acting, and there was that that I was real, I was just absorbing, and uh, I love that about this. You, there's no way to get bored in this career because you can just keep learning. Your languages can keep getting better. You can do something in another, you know, like I just did my first Czech opera. I sang um, Yeji Baba in Paris. And um, it, it was so fun that to, to be able to do that. I can't say there was, oh, there's this one moment where yeah. it was this huge. I, I didn't really have that when I was, I think one thing that was difficult is it was so big at the beginning. It was just so huge. And, you know, I was like, when I was at the Met, I thought, oh, they're going to, find me out they're gonna find me imposter out. syndrome yeah I did and um but I'm just gonna keep doing it until yeah. they do and then I got out I had agents I had a, a world agent and I had a European agent um and was working full-time was you know I was offered a big recording contract and I turned it down because I was like I for I'm like not a ready. solo recital I'm not done anything. For... Yeah. Okay. I was like, I haven't done anything. What yeah. am I going to record? Yeah. I mean, if I'm going to record it, it's going to be good. It's going to yeah. be ready. And, um, but it was just amazing opportunities. And so it's always been very, very exciting. And, you know, it's a, it's a life that I love. I love the travel. I love the music I get to sing. Um, it's, it's wonderful. Well, what is your passion repertoire? Because like your, the types of roles you sing are all over the place, yeah. and like I don't, I don't even know what is you, you know. Well, you know, I predominantly do concerts. I okay. do like one or maybe one or two stage opera a year. The rest is all concerts. Okay. Um, which I love. Um, I love Wagner. I love you know. I get to do so many roles: Venus and Kundry and. Zieglinda and Waltrauta, and they're all just so interesting, really interesting roles. Brangena and um, I, I love Judith in Bluebird's Castle, which I have sung probably more than anyone on earth. I love it so much, and I keep learning from it every time I do it. And you know, I really had fun doing the Yeji Baba. I, I, this is the thing. I just, what is, what am I passionate about? That's hard to say. Well, you just did the Mahler Eight. 
I love, yeah. you know, I love Mahler, obviously. Yeah. I love Mahler. I sing Mahler 2, Mahler 3, Mahler 8, Das Lied von der Erde, all the yeah. song cycles. I mean, well, I, I will tell you that I have learned a lot about song repertoire from Matthias Garna. Okay. And his interpretation, um, both musically and, and um, poetically. I think Mahler is a very internal composer and I think it has to be organic and I think if people try to make it sound a certain way they failed I think it has to come from an, an organic place where where the emotions actually come from um, and that is a very personal thing for instance, um, obviously Matthias sings a lot of Mahler as well. I heard him sing the Kindertoten later. We do it completely different, and the experience is completely different. Him being a man, me being a woman. Mm -hmm. um, but I was, I was very touched by how he did it. I loved how he did it. I'm not going to do it that way, but I mm -hmm. loved how he did it. I have an interesting story though about that. I was um, supposed to fly to to Europe to sing Bluebeard with Pierre Boulez, who I loved. And 9-11 uh, happened. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't, of course, get to Europe because all the flights were canceled. And San Francisco Symphony couldn't get their soloist over. So they said, will you come here and do the Kindertoten leader? Huh. So I drove to San Francisco with my dad. From where? From, from Colorado. Okay. I live in Colorado. Okay. And um, a week after 9-11, actually, I had just moved back to Colorado. A week after 9-11, I sang the Kindertoten Leader with San Francisco Symphony. Ugh. It was so, it was such an incredible experience. And, you know, we would be in the middle of practicing, and then we'd have to stop because so many of us had started crying, mostly being me, and I couldn't <laughs> sing. Um, it was it was really powerful experience and we ended up recording it and won a Grammy for it and mm. there was something very I don't know authentic uh, and yeah, like, yeah. about winning the Grammy visceral, for that from yeah, that experience that, yeah. it was it will always have a really deep effect on me of course those songs do anyway but I feel like I've lived them so that was that was incredible I, I know that we have to move on and go to Matthias's concert, um, but I really wanted to thank you for taking time out of your day to do this, and I'm going to go look for that Grammy-winning recording of Kindertoten Leader. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure having you on Opera Box Score. It's been a pleasure for me. Thank you. From Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. 
But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything that you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. American soprano Renee Fleming will redesign the Aspen Music Festival Summer Opera Program with conductor Patrick Summers. An op-ed by Viet Thanh Nguyen in last weekend's The New York Times talked about the ways in which the musical Miss Saigon is racist. He went on to reveal that the Pope believes in transubstantiation and that bears do actually defecate in the woods. John Barry, former director of English National Opera, is putting together a musical on the the life of Luciano Pavarotti, together with the tenor's widow, Nicoletta. The role of the big man will not be cast. No one, says Barry, can fill his shoes. Sing for Your Life is the premiere of musical production by bass baritone Ryan Speedo Green and author Daniel Bergner. That opens Saturday in Virginia. A divorce has been finalized between Sir John Elliott and Lady Isabella Gardner after 25 years of marriage. In trading news, Andreas Medesek announced that he will depart from his position as Long Beach Opera Artistic and General Director in September 2020. Soprano Patricia Reset will be the Artistic Director of the Young Artist Programs at Opera Theatre of St. Louis. Canadian Opera Company Director Alexander Neef is heading to France to run the Paris Opera in 2021. He revealed to the Times that the French President Emmanuel Macron interviewed him for 45 minutes for the GD Post. Over to the disabled list, Anna Netrebko has canceled her Bayreuth Festival debut. Exit stage right, director Hal Prince, one of Broadway's truly legendary directors, and on this day, Tuscan opera composer Pietro Antonio Cesti was baptized in 1623. Neapolitan opera composer Leonardo Leo was born in 1694. And French opera composer Ambroise Thomas was born in 1811. That is your two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. That's who's in the studio tonight on Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out with us, along with our guest co-host, Ashley Hardgrave. So we heard the uh, a little bit of the studio recording of Parsifal. That was from Act Two, uh, conducted by Mark Yanowski, featuring Michelle de Jong as Kundry, with uh, Christ, uh, Christian Elsner as Parsifal. And we also heard a little bit of the Grammy Award-winning recording with San Francisco Symphony of the Kindertotenlieder, perfect for your summer listening. <laughs> um, that was with Michelle de Jong, obviously, of uh, Michael Tilson Thomas conducting. By All right, way. Ashley, you're our guest. So let's see here. Renee Fleming taking over uh, a reboot of the Aspen Music Festival. What do you think of that? I am delighted by this choice. I mean, she's she said in interviews before that she, you know, always thought that she would end up coming home to Aspen in some way. And it feels like this is really, this is really, I mean, first of all, it's a, a banner summer for this sort of stuff. A lot of veteran singers are starting to take over some of these young artist programs. Uh, and, and I really hope that she uh, kind of sticks to her guns on how she's, kind of put her money where her mouth is and in being able to work outside of the the original genre that made her famous. She's really stepped into musical theater. She started to do some acting work, you know, so I want her to bring sort of that multifaceted approach into how she's going to train the singers for the next era. Oliver, you look like you have something to say. No, I'm waiting. For, I'm really patiently waiting. <laughs> for you to be yeah. Um, yeah. So I, you know, what I, what I really appreciate is that, you know, she's, uh, she has said that they, they need to be able to do all of these different types of things. And frankly, they, they also need to be able to, to market and and almost in a way manage themselves and I think that's that's true of most of the young singers that are coming up now I also think that her uh, her soon to be colleague Patrick Summers says it best uh, the future of opera is going to look very very different from what we matured into so I hope there's a real mindfulness from them of bringing the the history and the legacy of what they have learned both through their schooling and from sort of the hard knock life and then bring it to this era of young singers while being mindful of the fact that they're going to need a slightly different set of skills as they move forward so instead of death by Aria, it's going to be death cat for cutie by Aria. But um, <laughs> dude, that was 
That was so. No, I just thought of that. <laughs> you waited, you waited um, so long. No, no. I would. What I was leering around for is because <laughs> I was wondering if anybody here has been to Aspen. No, but uh, I have multiple roommates who have. Yeah, I've that's <laughs> the thing. It's like we haven't talked about it as one of our uh, OBS road trips. So well, I'm curious, like, what type of opera program do they have there? In well, the I think part of the reason that it's a pay to sing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I've never. It's it's a pay a lot to sing. Yeah, actually. it's yeah. it's not a. It's, Aspen, it's Aspen mortgage your grandma and pay I'm not gonna lie to you. Aspen is one of those places that I because of how much it costs. Yeah. It's one of those ones that I think is like ruining the institution of opera. Yeah, I, I definitely hot, hot take. Cool. <laughs> Renee Fleming's gonna be there. Also, last year it was sixty five dollars to apply. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's one of the and reasons I never, I never went notorious. for it as a singer. They're notorious for taking that $65 and not giving you an audition. Right. And the tuition in the article says that for this summer or for next summer, it's like 9500 Yeah. Listen, for I'm going to say that I'm going to say that again. $9,500 that you're asking. How many weeks? Eight oh. weeks that you're asking a student to pay. That is criminal. It's $11.87 and 50 cents per week. Because nobody <laughs> has that money. Nobody no, has there that are money. Who have that no. money? No, there no, are there are people. There are, no, there are people's money. parents exactly who have that like money. That's how right. there are people's parents who can pay that, but there are not students who can go who have that money. That's how the I, pipeline stays white and rich. Yep. So. No, I, I'm a huge not proponent. Okay, or so fan then, of so then, <laughs> Patrick Summers is he wrong to say that the future of opera is going to look very, very different from what we maybe there'll be a Renee Fleming scholarship? You know, maybe. Well, they actually they they do kind of go to that in the article. There's some fellowships that are going to yeah. be uh, either full tuition or partial tuition. Uh, if someone can stall for time, I'm going to find that quote. Yeah. Right well, there. well, there there would have to be. Anyway, we, we can move on. At, yeah. At, at that rate, um, Ashley, you were also jazzed about Patricia Reset. Uh, getting her hands on the Young Artist Program at Opera Theater of St. Louis. Yes, yes, I certainly was. I just found the quote for Renee Fleming. Uh, 14 singers will be named Renee Fleming artists. Their costs will be fully covered, and they will work closely with Miss Fleming. So closing the loop there. Nice. Um, but for, yeah. Is it like you have to, every time they're announced, like, my name is Oliver Camacho, a Renee Fleming artist tenor. It's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. I hope so. That sounds like yeah. it Oliver is a mouthful. Oh. Oliver is a handful hey. of snacks. Hey. Hey. Yeah, I, I think what they're saying is you're a snack, Oliver. <laughs> That's what that means. No, I'm super excited about Reset. I just, uh, I, I love I love her as a human. I love her as an artist. I love her whole, uh, but how does that make you feel? Like she seems to be really in tune with kind of who she is as a human. And so I'm hoping that she really brings that that sort of self-awareness combined with self-assuredness and her lovely, lovely wife uh, when they come together to the Midwest. Tobias Wright, what's tickling your fancy this week? Uh, there's going to be a musical <laughs> about Pavarotti. Duh. Also, the smartest thing that I read in that article about the musical about Pavarotti right. is that there will not be Pavarotti. At least there will not be someone cast as. Oliver, you're giving me side no, eye. No, I, I mean, I could think of some tenors who could play Pavarotti, especially a young Pavarotti, you know. But uh, that's good. That maybe I don't know. I think it's going to be fascinating. Like a hologram, like that Maria Callas show. I really hope that they don't do a Pavarotti hologram tour. (laughs) Though, if they do, yeah, I'd go. I will only go with you if they also have the Tupac hologram next to him. Coachella. Mm, That was so weird when that happened and it broke the internet. Be like, what is this? And now (laughs) we're just like, well, we'll do it with everybody. Anyway, the musical gets me really excited. And what about it is so exciting to you? Uh, it's Pavarotti, and if, and well, if uh, yeah. yeah, is there anything else that gets you excited? What uh, what what about that doesn't get you excited? <laughs> Excuse me, I don't understand your question. Did you see the movie, the Ron Howard movie? No, but I have the poster that you got for me hanging okay. in my in my apartment. <laughs> okay, I I mean there are like stories about Pavarotti that were not covered in that movie. Yeah, uh, it was like a commercial for I'm sure you know great recordings of Pavarotti that they did uh, that. You know, the whole reason that movie I came out was like to bring that uh, discography back to life. You know, I have such a, you know, personal I feel like love for the man because he's the per- like I, Pavarotti is how I was like, oh, that's an that's opera. I had no idea it even existed until I heard his voice, and so for me, I mean, there's this really deep love mm-hmm. for the voice. And like, but then you know that he was like a, a hilarious dude and a very, very flawed human. Yeah. And he admitted all of that. 
Yeah. And so it's like so it's it's nostalgia for you, just like all these uh, Star Wars Star Wars movies coming out again, and yeah, something like Stranger Things, which yeah. is like well, also to have it be done as a musical and with the people doing it, I mean, it's not going to be shoddy and like. If there are not documentaries, there are not things, and the article touches on this, there's no, um, the Pavarotti estate is very picky about what they allow to be done. That's very true. And so what is done is very, very well done. And so, of course, I'm excited. I mean, it's just more to have. So in a way, it's kind of already been vetted a bit. Oh, yeah. Just because it has made this clearance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Oliver Camacho, we got time for one more. Well, I mean, we have a personal relationship with Jenny Rivera from uh, Long Beach Opera, so I, I'm looking forward to seeing how that story develops with Andres Mitisek departing as artistic director. Um, he also was the artistic director of um, Chicago Opera Theater. He did more than just yeah. conduct. He also stage directed, and I think he was like the lead administrator or something like. He had like all the jobs. He was the administrator, and he also designed a number of the productions yeah. that would transfer between COT and LBO. Yeah. So I mean, there was some interesting, uh, you know, pioneering work that he did with COT and with Long Beach Opera. Um, was it always successful in Chicago? I don't know. I think maybe the Long Beach Opera audience uh, has been cultivated to, you know, want that type of repertoire. But um, yeah, it kind of took COT for a loop over here. Like it was because Brian Dickey had previously held that position, and Brian Dickey was like a, you know, a Britain Mozart, you know, Baroque guy. You know, so that's what we were getting used to for Chicago Opera Theater. And then we had these weird things, you know, some of which were really successful, like the Ricky and Gordon Orpheus and Eurydice. The Stuart Copeland opera as well, Mm -hmm. uh, Invention of Morel, actually. Do you like that? I loved it. Okay. I thought it was But you're also very weird. Yeah. Your (laughs) your tastes are also (laughs) super unconventional, you know? You know what I don't love? Is is Anna Netrebko, of course. I I cannot believe that her um, Bayreuth debut was canceled. Uh, the festival announced that that was due to fatigue and that she would not sing the role of Elsa in Wagner's Lohengrin. That was supposed to happen uh, late next week. Second cancellation from her in the past two weeks, having previously withdrawn from Adriana Lecouvre at the Salzburg Festival. My God, if you had a ticket for to see her at Bayreuth and you got that email that was saying, Liber Publicum Leider, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Uh, you would be furious. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, go on. You would be so so incredibly furious. It happens. I get that. Yeah. No, I I agree. There, you know, as as someone who is very specific and selective about her concert experiences, you know, these are these are things that are carefully planned, and and you it invest money into these things, and yeah, mm-hmm. I would have been devastated. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she's be- she's become a brand. That's that's what happened to her. By basically. the way, to be interviewed by Emmanuel Macron for forty five minutes, I would. I'd oh my gosh! Yeah. I forgot about that. Can yeah. I be interviewed yeah. by Emmanuel Macron? <laughs> exactly. Okay, Macron? not even that. Could you imagine Trump doing anything for forty five minutes? Yeah. Much less. <laughs> much less a general director. Director position well, for the National Friends, Opera. Two hours long, so. Oh my God, it's amazing! Like I hear about stuff like that, and I hear about Trudeau, and like these guys' investments and in, and in care I for think the just arts. Like French guys as much as I do. I because they have thought and they are leaders, and they still care about the arts. They, I mean, they smile makes me want to cry. We're gonna wrap it up. <laughs> Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight, wherever you are, for Opera Box Score. Thanks to our guest co-host, Ashley Hardgrave. We have a good call or a bad call segment to wrap up our show. Ashley, is there anything in your world of opera that you love and that you want to recommend? Or is there anything that you've seen or read about that you just want to slam and you cannot stand? That would be your bad call. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, my my good call is mostly just, again, a shout out to our, our dear, dear topic of conversation today, Jamie Barton, because she just had uh, the premiere of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg piece, When There Are Nine, uh, at the, uh, is it Cabrillo or Cabrillo? I never remember. The one in Santa, per- Santa Cruz? The Cabrillo Festival of <laughs> Contemporary Music in Santa Cruz. So, uh, yes, yeah, so my good call is Jamie Barton and everyone involved in the production of uh, When, they are Ni- when There Are Nine. Uh, and my bad call is anybody who is not Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> <laughs> Oliver Camacho. 
So as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we are in the thick of it for vocal activities at Ravinia Festival here in the Chicagoland area. Um, Matthew Polanzani gives a recital tomorrow, and Angel Blue makes her Ravinia debut uh, later on this week, and she gives a master class at the Staines Kids. And I have to say, I went mm. to, the, to the first Staines concert, which was on um, Sunday, and I heard a bunch of new voices I'd never heard before, but I did hear Nils Nilsson, who we played uh, as a preview for the Staines concert, and he's such a bizarre artist. He's very angular, and he walks out very stiff, and he sort of just like kind of stops time and controls the room and just sings weird Scandinavian songs and then floats a high note and then we start crying. It's so strange. I don't know what it is, but it was a great concert, but then like he did this weird stuff and I didn't know, I just, I started crying. I could not help it because he's just like a, a wizard. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general managers at WNUR, Henry Moskal and Samuel Sangvi. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright and our guest co-host, Ashley Hargrave, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera now that you've survived Lollapalooza. We're back on Monday, August 12th with an epic three-hour show. Yes, three full hours of the OBS. It starts at 7 p.m. Central, live in studio guests, including conductor Anthony Bereze, a new inductee into the OBS Hall of Fame, interviews, much more. That is Monday, August 12th, starting at 7 p.m. Central. For our podcast listeners, we're going to slow drip release it over the last three weeks of August. Join us. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, Chicago Sound Experiment.